0: And thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Headley. I was prepared to write off a literal lifelong battle with insomnia as just being part of the gig when I did more than 30 years of morning television and radio. I dug a little bit deeper and found out that I had a lot more that I needed to learn. So in this series, we try to fix your sleep by figuring out why mine is so horribly broken and maybe we can stumble upon some answers together. There is a lot to get to in this episode. It's the longest episode we've ever released. And that's for a specific reason. First, we're going to introduce you to Beth Wyatt, or as you might know her online, Sleep Coach Beth, from the Calm and Cozy podcast, and especially the Calm and Cozy Book of Sleep. Then we're going to address a listener email by going straight to the smartest expert on the planet when it comes to the topic that they asked about. And finally, Dr. Michael Grandner is back from the University of Arizona with an angle on sleep stages that I had never thought about before. It kind of changed everything about how I look at sleep, and I bet it does the same for you. But when you get to the end of the episode, you'll understand why there was nothing about this week's show that we wanted to leave out. So we're going to start with author, sleep coach, and podcaster, Beth Wyatt. Beth, everybody that's on the show gets the very same first question, whether you are a neuroscientist or a head of state. Not that we've had any of those, um, but you know where I'm going with this. Um, your first question is this How did you sleep last night?
1: I had a pretty good sleep last night. I got a little over seven hours, and seven is my bare minimum that I go for so that I can function properly. And <laughs> It was good. Uh, You know what? I woke up a few times because my room was a little warm, a little warmer than usual. And I like to believe that it's not because I'm like middle aged and approaching, you know, (laughs) the (laughs) The time. Yeah. uh (laughs) So I think it was just temperature in my room and uh, I was able to fall asleep right away and it was good.
0: Now, I I know this is a pressure loaded question for someone who is a sleep coach, but um, even even your book acknowledges that, you know what, not not everything works for everyone. So what's your go to on a night when sleep doesn't show up for you? What do you do about it?
1: I have two things. I focus on rest instead of sleep. I give myself permission to just rest my body and my brain instead of pressuring myself to fall asleep. And I focus on my breath, which is kind of weird for me because I grew up in church and that wasn't something that we did. We didn't do meditation. So it's kind of funny now that I'm promoting meditation to people. But I focus on the breath coming in and out of my nostrils or out of my lungs. And that works for me.
0: Is there a particular meditation doctrine that you subscribe to? Are you are you a TM person? Are you a uh, Theravada person? All those sorts of, or is it just a breath in, breath out?
1: <laughs> it's breath in, breath out. It's there you go. That's fancy. the easiest one.
0: That's that's the most accessible yeah. one.
1: Yeah, it's just lying in bed. I don't do anything special with my hands or my legs. Like my limbs just lie comfortably as as though I'm about to fall asleep. And I breathe in, I breathe out. Uh, sometimes I picture the, the breath as a color that's coming into my body and then going out around the space around my body. And that's it. I seem to find that relaxing. And I think sometimes the easier, the, the better doesn't have to be difficult.
0: Yeah, because I've heard people say before, and I kind of subscribe to the shows from myself now too. If you're trying to fall asleep, you've already lost.
1: <laughs> yeah, by virtue of the whole yeah. trying putting thing. the pressure on yourself. Yeah, pressure. I I tried to nap once before um, a media interview, and it went horribly. I didn't fall asleep, and I stressed myself out even more. And I think that that's the key to um, staying calm at bedtime is not expecting sleep to happen. And that's why I think rest is such a, an amazing word.
0: Yeah, I, it's funny. I say that to my wife sometimes, too. If, she's, if she reports having difficulty falling asleep, I'll tell her, um, don't worry about the sleep part. Worry about the rest part, and then the rest will happen kind of when it's supposed to. Um, and I understand, of course, it makes sense that for you, calm is key because, I mean, that's half the title of the book. It is the calm <laughs> and cozy book of sleep. So you kind of have to, uh, although I'm sure that the Venn diagram overlaps a lot. But you've got two very interesting audiences. You've got your readers. Well, actually three. You've got your readers. You've got the listeners to your podcast and you've got your coaching clients as well. Um, and and I'm interested in how those three overlap with each other, because in two of the cases, you're not talking to a specific person where you are with the coaching. You're one on one with someone. So how does the advice differ for one specific person versus a vast audience of either readers or listeners? Oh,
1: that's a great question. I've find that my three audiences usually do overlap. I've, my book was written for general sleep advice. I like to think that it's a lot of tips and techniques put into one, no matter what stage you're at in your, you know, sleep story or your sleep journey, everybody can find a little something from it. But I really do specialize in insomnia and people with like bedtime anxiety, bedtime thinkers as I call them, so podcast listeners and co- and coaching clients are very much the same. I'm usually getting somebody who has listened to my podcast and likes it who wants to work with me one-on-one because a coach is someone who helps you put into practice what you're learning. So someone who comes to me and has no they've tried everything and they have no idea what to do now, they go to see a doctor. They don't come to see a coach. So I do find there's a lot of overlap with those three things. I just gave you a very lengthy answer.
0: No, that's good. Lengthy question. answers are good. We love lengthy <laughs> answers around here. It's good. You're going to get a lot of them. <laughs> okay, excellent. See, this is we'll get along just fine. Um, so it's, for people who are not yet... Uh, until this very moment, aware of your podcast. Give me the treetops. What's your podcast about?
1: The podcast is called the Common Cozy Podcast. It's about sleep and sleep related topics. I have a lot of guests that come on that are wellness professionals, and they will come and talk to my listeners about their expertise and how it relates to sleep. I also mix a little bit of self-care in there. I tell some of my own stories. I went through, I had a surgery a couple years ago and I incorporated that. I kind of told my story um, and talked about sleep and self-care. So I I do try to bring everything back to to sleep and self-care. There is still a lot of uh, insomnia relief help in there as well, because that's the thing I'm most passionate about. I also dabble in telling uh, short stories to put people to sleep because I was told the number one compliment I got on my podcast in about the first year was that my voice put put people to sleep which kind of (laughs) surprised me because I never really liked my voice I always used to joke that I had like a a low like a male kind of voice I always said like my voice is not very feminine and you know what it's been working for me as a sleep coach so um, telling short stories to put people to sleep. I've dabbled a little in doing some sleep meditations on my podcast as well. So it really is a lot like me. It's um, multi-passionate. It has a lot to it. So there's kind of a little bit for a lot of different um, people who are interested in sleep and self-care. So th- it, I needed another lengthy answer to tell you about it because it is not just one thing. <laughs>
0: No, that makes sense. Um, and, and you and I have on our, both of our podcasts, we share some people in common. Um, and, and I have a hunch we both, uh, would, would rave about some of the guests that we've had in common across our two shows. Julie Flygar pops to mind. Um, Diane Haspel Johnson uh, pops to mind. Uh, who I think was on what your most recent episode, at least as, as we sit down to record this. Um, and she's kind of spectacular. We, we had an amazing conversation and she uh, did a, sort of a custom hypnosis for my wife and I that we did in our living room one night. And it was my, we recorded it and my wife still listens to it five or six times a week because it was that compelling and that effective for her. Uh, on the nights that, you know, sleep doesn't show up. It, she's, she's amazing.
1: Hmm. She is. I really just got to know her recently. we have been following each other on Instagram a bit and just kind of messaging each other, uh, commenting on posts. And I asked her to be a guest and she had told me she had been listening to my podcast. And I'm, I don't know why I'm always surprised when someone says like, Oh, I'm a fan. I always think that's, weird i thought only my mom listened to my podcast um, <laughs> but yeah we had a great talk too like it's a great episode but also probably the like half hour to hour that wasn't recorded was was also great guy like i call it like she's my new best my new um sleep bestie you know yeah. besides you neil of course <gasps>
0: Well, I'm working on it. I'm working on, uh, you know, she and I will go back and forth for a while. That's, and then I'm okay with that. And I'm okay with her winning most of the time because she is kind of amazing. It was, it took about three minutes for her to discover something about, um, my sleep that I never, ever even entertained the idea of or had considered. Um, and, and I'm not even sure if we ever talked about it on the show, um, and it might be fodder for a future episode that I might need to bring Diane back on here for. But a couple of minutes in, we talked about the fact that uh, in in because my wife and I are sleeping in separate bedrooms, which we also deal with on a different episode uh, of the show with Wendy Troxel, where we talk about sleep divorce and what a terrible term it is, but how completely effective it is and can be the difference maker for some people. But because we sleep in different rooms, we kind of drew straws and decided that the monitoring of the baby would fall to me. Or at least I kind of we didn't literally draw straws. I just said, you know what, I'll do it. And in a conversation with Diane, it took maybe two or three minutes for her to seize upon the idea. And I had never thought of it that me monitoring the baby is my way of 45 to 50 years later making up for what I didn't have, which was someone watching out for me when I was a child. Um, because, as people who listened to the leaked chapters of my book already know, and who've seen me on television here in Canada and whatnot already know, um, I am a childhood sex assault survivor. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that they told me early on at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto, where I went for my first sleep test, was that maybe a lot of my sleep problems originate from this idea that I just, I grew up not thinking of bed as a safe place. And so the me monitoring the baby now all these years later is is full circle. It's me going back to childhood me and wishing someone had been keeping an ear on me while i was a kid it was it was fascinating and she picked up on it instantly and and my wife and i both kind of sat back on the couch and there were some tears for a few minutes and then we went on with the rest of the conversation but she's um tremendously intuitive and an interesting person just for a chat with so if anybody that's listening now is in that neck of the woods i think it's safe to say beth that you and i would both heartily recommend getting in touch with her if that's an avenue that you're willing to pursue
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Because, I mean, she's, she came on as, you know, a self-hypnosis for sleep specialist, but she is trained in so much more than that. So for her to pick up on something like that shows that she's very well-rounded as a sleep professional.
0: I want to go back to an episode of your podcast and talk about where to use a Ghostbusters term, uh, where the streams cross for you and I, um, which is that we both uh, had um, various uh, sleep issues that we went to get examined by professionals, and we both learned stuff that we didn't see coming, didn't we? (laughs)
1: Yes, we did.
0: Talk to me about what happened with you.
1: I was expecting um, narcolepsy I was thinking mild narcolepsy or hypersomnia. I'm tired a lot. I, I sleep well. I do everything right. Um, but I, I'm still tired. So I went in hoping for a lot of answers. And I got what I think is a, a normal diagnosis for a lot of people. I was told that I had very mild sleep apnea, to which I responded <laughs> really like four <laughs> times in a row because I just couldn't believe that I had sleep apnea because I've, I'm not, a, I'm not normally a snorer. I don't wake up gasping for air. So I didn't really have any signs of that. Sure. I was, I have to say I was really disappointed because I wanted a better answer for why I've been tired for like half of my life. And I felt like sleep apnea wasn't the answer I was looking for. Um, I, I also feel like the test is a little it's a little skewed when you're sleeping on a really hard mattress in a strange room of someone else's place. Like I I have to sleep well. Um, I have to feel safe to sleep well. I have to feel safe and cozy and cocooned. And I definitely did not feel that way in uh, in the sleep clinic. It, it was nice and clean it just wasn't a place that I would think I'd get a fair assessment but all of that being said i I found out I had mild sleep apnea which is something that I feel like I need to take care of before I can go on to get another diagnosis if there is one
0: so interesting yeah because experience. I had a similar experience with my sleep test in that. You know, when I, when I describe the bed in the hospital, with all due respect to the wonderful uh, men and women at Sunnybrook Hospital <laughs> in Toronto, you people are amazing. You uh, literally changed my life. And I'm grateful every single day to Mark and the gang over there for everything that they taught me about my sleep. However, um, when I describe the bed to people, I say, OK, so imagine if you took a sheet of cardboard and actually that's it. Imagine if you took a sheet of cardboard and slept on it Um, because that's the way I describe it. I mean, it's not designed to be comfy and and, and cozy. And that's one of the reasons that I, uh, the word cozy obviously worked its way into the title of your book and your podcast is because like you say, cozy counts, calm counts. I mean, uh, you zeroed in on what sounds like are two of the critical things for you. Does that tend to be where it is for a lot of people with insomnia, does it come back to things like sleep hygiene typically and things like that?
1: I don't think it does. I think that a lot of people who are struggling with insomnia for years have tried everything and don't want to be told an annoying solution like spray lavender on your pillow. I think those kinds of suggestions are actually quite offensive to someone who is sleep deprived and has been for decades, I think they feel like, well, yeah, I tried turning my pillow over or like I tried playing music. I think that uh, a simple solution like a sleep aid uh, is not really usually the answer for an insomniac. I don't believe that they're going, hey, that's a great idea. I haven't tried that when given that kind of a solution. I find that the, the brain part of it, the, how do I say it? Like an external solution has usually been tried and that wasn't enough. But when they start to realize that it is their brain that's stopping them from sleeping, it is racing thoughts. Being told that you have control over the way you react to your thoughts is is very freeing for a lot of people because I think the key of meditation is usually clear your mind. And I think that someone who has racing thoughts and struggles with those at bedtime, that's an impossible task to clear your mind and to not think about anything. So yep. for them to be able to accept that they think thoughts at night And welcome those thoughts, even in a funny way, I'll say, say something like, Oh, I was expecting you like right on time, crazy bedtime thoughts. But then to be able to control how they react to them is what I find the key to uh, one of the keys to uh, dealing with racing thoughts and insomnia symptoms.
0: I keep going back to a conversation that we had here a few months ago now with Jeff Warren, who is a Toronto based meditation coach and does a lot of the sleep content that's in the 10% happier app, um, where, you know, Dan Harris, who kind of is the guy behind the 10% happier books and podcast and app talks about how for meditation, the realizing that you have, uh, allowed your thoughts to go running all over the place again. And that's a win because, you know, the idea of focus on your breath, focus on your breath and recognize when you've stopped focusing on your breath and then bring it back. And and the, the interesting thing, you say it's freeing, too. Um, and it is, I think, for people when they recognize that the being able to see, oh, I stopped focusing on my breath and I started thinking about the groceries. OK, I got to start focusing on my breath again. That right there is how you do it. That's how you meditate.
1: Yeah. And being aware that you are breathing is so simple, but it's, it's very powerful as well.
0: Did you go back for a second night in the sleep lab or did you do the one?
1: I only did one because I was told like you have sleep apnea. So that's the thing we should deal with. Um, I would like to go back for another one but I think that the, once one little thing is found, that's kind of the focus. <laughs> so I'm, I would be interested to see if I would be able to fall asleep um, for the, I think it's with the narcolepsy test. I'm not convinced that I don't have even mild narcolepsy. Um, but and I do think it would be interesting as a sleep coach to have narcolepsy, <laughs> not going to lie. Right? Yeah, <laughs> I think that would be pretty interesting. A good story. It would
0: be and like if one I of wanted, the Walendas was afraid of heights. It would be I mean, you know, it's it, it, it it's the perfect contradiction. I love it, um, it because is. here's here's what I learned on my second visit. back. So my first one, we found out that I uh, let me know if this rings a bell had uh, mild sleep apnea, ah. which, by the way, my family doctor thought was, oh, I am t- textbook severe sleep apnea, just, you know, go to Sunnybrook and get it confirmed. Well, it turned out that my family doctor had no idea, which is okay because family doctors spend a few minutes on sleep in med school and that's okay. Um, But uh, what I did have in addition to the mild sleep apnea was I had restless legs and I had a periodic limb movement disorder to the point where I would kick violently in my sleep 82 times an hour. So for the sleep nerds listening, that's a periodic limb movement index of 82. So they put me on Mirapex, which is a drug uh, primarily meant for Parkinson's, but it also works for people with restless leg. And to see if we had made the right guess, I went back to Sunnybrook about, I don't know, six or eight weeks later for a second sleep test. And the numbers were completely different. My deep sleep had gone from 1% Yikes, up to 7%. My periodic limb movement had gone from 82 an hour down to uh, something like 0. 0.7 an hour or something like that. So it had completely nipped both problems in the bud. But what the interesting part for me, aside from just the sheer numbers, was, and I know you've heard this term before, what they call um, a first night effect in a sleep lab. And so everybody that goes for one night, uh, it has has issues with the mattress. They have issues with the camera. They have issues with the with the electrode stuck to your head, blah, blah, blah. Um And then they bring you back for a second night where all that stuff feels a little bit more familiar. And so it gets in the way less. And the people at Sunnybrook in particular did a great job of comparing and contrasting the two sets of numbers with uh, and you can look it up if you're listening now and you want to look this thing up you go to a website that's psgnorms.com psgnorms.com and what it allows you to do you punch in your age you punch in your gender and it will tell you what numbers are normal quote-unquote normal on your first night in a sleep lab and then you can click a button and it will tell you what's normal for your second night. And this is data that's been assembled from hundreds of thousands of people who have gone to sleep labs. And these are the trends that they see. And they've assembled all this data. And it's it's amazing. So the second night thing really does make a difference. So for you, Beth, now that you and I are, you know, kind of unofficially friends um, – <laughs> I may end up haranguing you and harassing you into going for that second sleep lab because I know based on where you live that it's also covered by your health insurance.
1: Yes. I think you should harass me because as my new sleep bestie, that's kind of your job now <laughs> to make sure that I'm okay. I will I'm take
0: on that mantle. Right See, so when the follow-up book comes out, Calm and Cozy 2, you know, you can mention the the lunatic uh, radio guy who uh, basically uh, wouldn't leave you alone until you went back for a second night. And here's what happened. I I can see that chapter unfolding.
1: I prefer actually the name of the second book to be calmer and cozier. Sure. If that's okay. If we can, you know what, we can discuss that after. That's fine. I
0: love that you have already got the second book planned. (laughs) I love that. (laughs)
1: calmer and even cozier would be another option. But you know what? I'm going to talk to the publisher and we'll work that out later.
0: I'm such a fan of all of the Dan Harris stuff that my wife and I have joked uh, that my entire project should be called 10 percent nappier. Uh, But, you know, I'm not a I'm not a napper. It takes me forever to fall asleep in the front. like I talked to somebody uh, earlier today that uh, tells me about taking a 20 minute nap. Okay, And I loathe those people with the fire of a thousand suns because it, ta- it does take me forever to fall asleep. And so if I was to try and lie down for a 20 minute nap, I would need to block out two hours because there's the whole falling asleep part of it that would chew up the first hour or hour and a half. And then I get to the nap part. Are, 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 the, are you a big uh, advocate of napping? Are you a napper yourself?
1: Oh my God, I'm wearing a sweatshirt that says nap queen. So I was a little disappointed that there wasn't video for this recording because I wore it just for you. <laughs> I'm a huge <laughs> napping fan. I come from a very long line of nappers. Like my grandmothers fell asleep in front of Jeopardy and then we were forced to sit and watch watch it as like six and seven year olds. Um, my parents, my mom will get into her bed and and into her pajamas for her nap so it's pretty serious we are very big nappers in my family and it's funny because i'm listening to you talk about how it takes you forever to fall asleep Yep, and it does me as well like when i lie down to fall asleep at night it takes me i would say at least 20 to 30 minutes depending how tired i am but for my nap, I can be out in 5 to 10. So, I mean, that's also why I think like there's some sleepiness issues, some daytime sleepiness issues for sure. But the nap is my favorite thing. My, I, I always say one of my favorite feelings in the world is lying down for my nap. And knowing that there's nothing else I have to do, like it's okay for me to just fall asleep. And I can nap for 10, 15, 20 minutes and get up and feel better. I, I feel like I've taken the edge off with a short nap and then I'm not sleepy for the next few hours. So I've definitely learned to be a short napper. I never was. I was like a two hour napper before and that just felt gross to me, but I also needed it. And I've learned in the last few years, that napping for a short time does work for me. I just had to get used to that feeling of waking up, feeling a little better. I don't have to feel amazing, <laughs> but even a little better is definitely an improvement. So.
0: Is being calm and being cozy the secret to napping?
1: It is for me, yeah. I can't fall asleep just anywhere. I have to feel like I'm not going to be disturbed I will put in headphones and put white noise on. I need to know that whoever's around me knows I am napping. Don't, you know, scare me or try to draw on my face with a marker because I won't fall (laughs) asleep if I feel like something like that's going to happen. I definitely have to to feel like um, things are calm. I am not needed for the next 20 minutes. This is my time to just, to relax and then I can, otherwise I can't fall asleep. If I feel like you now someone's going to burst in at any moment and find that I'm napping and I'm busted.
0: So now do I need to be concerned as your new sleep bestie that there are people <laughs> drawing on your face with markers? Is that a problem <laughs> for you?
1: Hey, you never know. I live with men. So. Okay. Um, All right. <laughs> like I, I'm saying I, can't fall asleep on like a train or something. If there are people around and I know that I'm going to look funny or my mouth's going to hang open and I'm going to drool on my shirt and people are going to be laughing and taking pictures and posting it on social media, that's not a calm and cozy nap for me. <laughs> that's just a disaster.
0: I have, yeah, I can't sleep on trains or in cars or on planes. Um, you know, the cars thing comes in handy because I'm usually driving. Um <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Do a lot of people that you run into uh, in in your in your clientele or in your listening or reading audio uh, is is not being able to sleep on trains, planes, automobiles? Is that common, or are there people who are great at it?
1: Uh, it's a mixed bag. It depends how tired somebody is. I think if you're exhausted enough, most people can sleep anywhere. I it's not a conversation I have often though. I have to admit
0: <laughs> one that I bet you are having often, uh, at least with your clients. <sighs> Talk to me about what COVID has done to people's sleep.
1: Oh, it's made sleep a pandemic within a pandemic. That's for sure. Uh, people who didn't have insomnia before certainly have it now. Um, a lot more things to worry about, not just their health or family's health, their jobs, you know, how they're going to pay their mortgage next month. Yeah, it's uh, changed. It changed the way I was about to do business as well. I was about to launch a a coaching program. I had a bunch of ideas and just kind of pivoted into like, I'm just going to be here to support people because this isn't something that, you know, I want to be uh, putting my hand out. (laughs) For right now. I just, uh, want to show up for people and, uh, you know, be in the Facebook group and give some free advice to people. Cause I sure have needed it a lot, a, a lot of different points in my life. So I appreciate it as well.
0: Fascinating. Fascinating. I, um, I, I love everything about your book. Uh, particularly, I got to tell you that I'm, I'm a huge fan of the way it's presented. Um, it's, it's fun to, it's not only is it an informative read, uh, not only is it, uh, fascinating and useful information, but if I can say this the right way without it coming out wrong, it's fun to look at.
1: (laughs) It is, it's a beautiful book and I can't take credit for the, the artistry of the book. I was not the, I had no hand in the design of the book. So I think that's why I can be a little cocky about how gorgeous it is because I'm not like tooting my own horn. It, it, it is a really beautiful
0: book. For those who, if you're trying to imagine it as you're sitting listening, um, and when you go look it up on Amazon and we'll make sure we put a link uh, in the show notes and on our website to where you can grab the book. Um. It's, it's almost like rather than being a thing where, you know, with so many books, especially because you and I are not of entirely a dissimilar vintage, um, you and I grew up with books that were like the first 48% was text, the last 48% was text, and then in the middle there were all the pictures. <laughs> um, where yours, the text is, for lack of a better description, the text is printed over top of this gorgeous, artwork. And it, it I, I found myself every once in a while catching myself looking away from the words because I was so taken by what the imagery was.
1: Yes, that was the goal right from the start. Uh, my publisher, Quarto, had told me they wanted this to be a beautiful book that someone could give as a gift. They wanted it to be a coffee table type book, something that you could dip in and out of. And those are the comments that I'm getting. So they definitely uh, achieved the goal. <laughs> and I'm, it's even more stunning than I had pictured it to be. And, I'm, and which also reminds me that I'm so happy that I didn't design it the way I was thinking it was going to look. <laughs> 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 so, yeah. So, as
0: a book it, designer, you're a heck of a sleep coach. Is that what you're saying?
1: <laughs> design student. And I guess I felt like, oh, I could design a book. And then I look at this and I'm like, Oh, this is, this is, um, beautiful. And I'm glad that I was only responsible for the words on the inside.
0: Well, I tell you what, um, uh, it's, it's, it's a fascinating read. It's a great listen. Um, and, and I would highly recommend, um, I I guess, I mean, with COVID in particular, everything that you do in regards to your coaching, I'm assuming is all done online. Was it done online before COVID came along? Yes. So it hasn't interrupted you one bit. You're just charging along the same way you've always been.
1: (laughs) Sort of. Yeah. Um, Everything was online because I wanted to have a a global reach that way um, so that I'm not only working with people in you know the greater Toronto area, and so that I don't have to leave my bed as well. To be honest, as a painfully introverted person, I think um, coaching online is uh, a brilliant invention. <laughs> I never have to leave the house. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's worked well. I'm I am. I have been taking a little break from coaching just because the book came out and I wanted to focus on on promoting a book which I'd never done before so really didn't know how much work was going to go into that and I have to say not a lot because I can't do book signings right now and everything is affected by um, covid and most of my um American influencers haven't received their books yet. So, I'm everything's kind of rolling in slowly and it's exciting. I think it's better that way. Than yeah. I mean,
0: as we're having this conversation, um Beth's book is what, 6 weeks old, I think it is now?
1: Um, oh, it came out on August 4th. So,
0: yeah. So, so when this comes out in the middle of September, it will be about six weeks old. And, and so, you know, uh, it's, it's, um, it's still grabbing uh, look here. I'll, let me do this on Beth's behalf. Once you've gotten your book, um, and grab the Kindle edition to get started with if you need to, but do her a favor. And when you do jump on Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you're going to buy it from for crying out loud, leave her a review. Um, because those matter to authors, uh, when, when their brand new books come out. So, um, Beth won't ask you to do that, but I'll ask on her behalf because I'm not sure if you know, we're sleep besties. (laughs) You've
1: always had my back, you know, ever since I met you 37 minutes ago, you've always just looked out. For me,
0: and I appreciate that. Yeah, it's you know it's thirty seven well invested minutes as far <laughs> as I'm concerned, um, Beth. I I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. One quick thing, um, just to kind of put a cap on the you took a little bit of a dip out of coaching. Um, I'm not sure if by the time this episode gets released to the world in the middle of September, because we're talking in the middle of August right now, and knowing as as we sit here that this episode will come out a month from now, do you anticipate that by the time we get this episode released, you're back on, on the coaching horse or are are you, do you have a date in mind where it's like, yeah, you know what, I'm going to focus on the book until such and such a date?
1: <laughs> I would like to do some group coaching again. Ooh. I have a Facebook group that is, I call it the Common Cozy Book Club, and I've invited anybody who's interested in reading the book or is currently reading it to come into the Facebook group and to get some coaching through it because I I don't want to just release all this information and not give you some steps to take towards it. I think accountability is is huge and I want to help people as they're learning to put these things into practice. So I'm going to be running Group coaching, and then eventually some more one-on-one coaching. But I really want to focus on the Facebook group, and those are going to be the people that I'm launching these programs to as well. Because I'm already—I mean, it's only been a a few weeks that I've had this group, and it's small, which I love. So we're really getting to know each other and getting to know, you know, how these people are sleeping and learning and. These are the people that that I want to coach. So that's kind of where I'm taking my coaching clients from. I I want to give them an opportunity to go deeper and into smaller groups or one on one and to continue the work that we're doing in the Facebook group on a daily basis.
0: I'm going to make a little checklist here. So I've got to put in the show notes and on our website, let's see, a link to the Facebook group, a link to your website, a link to the book, a link to the (laughs) podcast. There's a lot of links there. Is there anything else I should be linking to that you uh, that I just haven't asked the right question for you to be able to tell me about?
1: (laughs) No, I think you've got them all.
0: Because as your sleep bestie, you you know, I want to make sure that I'm covering all all the bases. here.
1: Yeah, No. Just for this episode, I wanted to just talk about these links, but I think next time I'm on, then I'll probably have a new group of links to promote.
0: See, I like the way you think on a number of levels there. First of all, I like that she's because earlier we established she's already thinking about the second book. She's already planned her next appearance on this show. (laughs) Uh, You know, this is good. I like it's it's like the the layout for the world domination. And I'm appreciative of that. I really am.
1: (laughs) Well, the next step for me is to get you on my podcast. Oh, boy. So you can be interviewed by somebody who has no idea what they're doing.
0: (laughs) Because you've got too many listeners. Is that why you need me on your pie?
1: (laughs) No, I just want to see what it would be like to interview somebody who is like a professional interviewer.
0: Uh, And and you can't find any of those people. So you'll talk to me instead. (laughs) Okay. All right. I'm game. We'll figure out your people will call my people and we'll make it happen. Uh, Beth this has been such a treat um, I love that in all of the time that you and I have spent either uh, chatting back and forth on social media or even in the entirety of this conversation I uh, without getting into the specifics I have a hunch that we could probably drop a hula hoop around each other because I get <laughs> the sense that we're probably in really close proximity to each other geographically but it's never come up in even a single conversation that we've had so far and I I think that's funny because uh, you know it's it's never been small talk it's it's um. It's about the. Listen, this is a massive topic. This is a thing that's affecting <laughs> hundreds of millions of people, and we're gonna. You know, we're gonna knock it out. And and uh, I, I love. Uh, I love the way you're approaching it. I love the fact that so many people are getting help from what you're doing, and uh, I'm. I'm glad you had some time to come on and talk about it.
1: I am too. This is my first sleep podcast that I've been on besides my own, and I'm guessing that you're that. Guy who just lives down the street who has the really loud car that wakes me up every morning. Is that what you're saying? How did you know that's you? The guy that I swear out the window to every morning. Yeah, with the fuzzy dice. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I knew it. As you might expect, links to all things Beth are waiting for you in the show notes and on our website at the Now, if you've been with the show before or for any length of time, you've heard me mention the link on our website that says reviews, feedback and support. And we got an email from a listener that we absolutely had to follow up on. And you'll get the full story here as we talk to Dr. Atul Malhotra from the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. A tool. everybody that comes on the show, I give them the very same first question and it gives us a jumping off point. So I want to find out from you because whether you're a head of state or a neuroscientist or a guitarist in a rock band, everybody gets the same first question. How did you sleep last night?
2: I slept OK. I was actually in the intensive care units. I got home late, but uh, I slept OK and I, I got up and felt good. Do you have a thing that you reach for when
0: you don't sleep well, when sleep, maybe you're having trouble falling asleep or something like that? Is there something that you do every
2: time? Uh, For me personally, I've been lucky. I I can pretty much sleep. uh, I, I pretty much sleep well. Nice. Lucky. Okay, so the reason I reached out to you in
0: particular and I love sort of the genesis of this episode because I got an email from uh, from Amy who listens in the UK. She's in London and she said, "Uh, I wonder if you can do an episode about U.A.R.S.? And I reached out to Michael Grandner, who's on the show all the time. And I said, who's the smartest person on the planet that you know of when it comes to UARS? And he said, oh, you have to talk to a Atul Malhotra. So here we are. And I guess if you're ready, uh, we can we can dive straight into this. Actually, with a question of my own okay. to get started before we get to Amy's question. What is UARS?
2: Yes, yeah, so UARS stands for Upper Airway Resistance Syndrome. And what it's talking about is kind of a subtle form of sleep apnea. We know in obstructive sleep apnea, people get stoppages in breathing when they're asleep. A very common problem, we've estimated up to a billion people worldwide with obstructive sleep apnea. But there's some more subtle forms of it that uh, fall into the grab bag of upper airway resistance syndrome. Some people have shied away from the term uh, recently because there's a recognition it's not anything new or different. It's just a mild form of sleep apnea. And the reason that there are different definitions and different terminologies is that we can't always agree on the criteria. So what one person calls sleep apnea, somebody else might say, well, it's sort of mild or it's sort of borderline, whatever. And so that's where the terms come from. It's just talking about milder forms. So if we're going to dive in and and figure out, and, and I,
0: I love that you've characterized it as just different criteria because Michael Grandner and I had the same conversation a couple of weeks ago about other, you know, we talked about sleep stages and how the numbers that are associated with sleep stages are things that we've been using for the last 50 years and they were just kind of arbitrarily assigned and we're right. going with them now because we came up with them 50 years ago. And it's, you know, it's kind of like why, what when Major League Baseball players don't step on the chalk line on their way off the field it's because babe ruth didn't and and everybody assumes if babe ruth did it that way then that's probably a good thing to do and that's (laughs) why baseball players don't step on the chalk lines so how do i know or does it even matter whether i have just garden
2: variety mild sleep apnea or whether i have uars um it it doesn't matter that much and it's probably worthwhile going back uh, in history a little bit just to figure out how things evolved it used to be the technology we used to measure breathing was not great. So we'd measure breathing when people were asleep and see whether their oxygen levels fell down or they woke up from sleep or see whether their airflow was diminished. And sometimes we'd see people that looked and smelled like sleep apnea. We'd do a test and look pretty normal and people say, what's going on? And so a guy named Christian Gimeno who actually recently passed away from Stanford came up with a a way to measure more subtle forms of breathing abnormality and saw that they were occurring. But what happened subsequently is we got better. measuring things instead of just using what's called a thermistor, which is a temperature sensor at the mouth and nose. We use something called nasal pressure, which picks up a lot of stuff. The pulse oximeters we use to measure oxygen levels have gotten better over time. So that entity was discussed in the early 1990s. Since then, the oximeters are a lot better. So we probably miss fewer of those cases. So if somebody asked me, you know, do you think I have UARS based on a test they had in 2020? It's kind of unlikely because with modern technology, we can usually pick it up. So let me get to some of Amy's questions
0: because she was very passionate about having me reach out and she said I'll quote right from her email she says I'm wondering if you can do an episode about UARS the effect of mild sleep apnea and she puts air quotes around airway focused dentistry it seems there's a lot of controversy around these areas and a lot of conflicting voices and opinions she says how do you get an accurate diagnosis and figure out whether it is it really is SBD causing your fatigue and sleep issues or something else?
2: Yeah, so it can be subtle. So what I think she's saying is uh, sleep disorder breathing. Uh, sleep disorder breathing is a broader term that includes obstructive sleep apnea. It includes the milder or subtle forms of sleep apnea, including upper airway resistance syndrome. It also includes other things that are more, less common, like central sleep apnea or hypoventilation and, and other things which are uh, less common. So how do you know you're getting good diagnostic test? Well, I recommend going to somebody that has the right expertise. There are some people I could diagnose from across the room with sleep apnea based on their their body habitus and based on their demeanor and whatnot. But in other cases, it's more subtle. And so you, you need to deal with a specialist who really knows what they're doing in terms of making the measurements. There are plenty of labs out there. They're just doing it for high-volume kind of uh, centers, but they, they don't always sweat the details in terms of what's needed. So it's a matter of finding somebody that's good, And if you don't know if they're good or not, you you know, try word of mouth or get uh, the right opinions. There is a thing called the American Academy of Sleep Medicine that accredits certain labs. And to meet those accreditation standards requires some quality control. And so that might be one way to make sure you're going to a a good laboratory. Here's another another one with an acronym that
0: I, I honestly didn't have a chance to look up, but I have a hunch you know what this is. She says, is CBCT an adequate airway diagnostic tool?
2: Yeah, CBCT is referring to something called cone beam uh, computed tomography. So that's uh, what dentists use to uh, look at the airway. It's a, a way of doing a CAT scan to look at whether the airway is compromised or not. It's not something that's generally necessary if you're doing just a run-of-the-mill workup for sleep apnea. There's some dentists that like it if they're doing treatment for sleep apnea. So just to take a step back, the treatment of choice for obstructive sleep apnea is nasal CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure. There's several million uh, people in North America wearing that to bed every night. It's quite a common treatment now. Uh, but in people that can't tolerate that or won't tolerate that, sometimes oral appliances or mouthpieces are used. Those are uh, put mouthpieces you stick in your mouth. They pull the lower jaw forward and they help to prevent collapse in the back of the throat. There are some dentists that like the CBCT or cone beam computer tomography. It's a, a fancy x ray to uh, decide what type of device or whether the patient's a good candidate for a device or not, but really the data on that aren't aren't terribly compelling. It's just something people do, and perhaps overdo. this radiation associated, and so I'm not a huge proponent of that. Although I understand some some people do use it. Boy, she uh, you you kind of
0: morphed perfectly into one of her other questions. She says, "Are those of us with small, narrow, or receded jaws just screwed? Is it either jaw surgery, CPAP, or nothing?"
2: You know, every, everybody's different and different uh, people look different. So there are risk factors for obstructive sleep apnea. One is called retrognathia, which is a pulled back jaw, or micrognathia, which is a small jaw. But not everybody that has those things are uh, necessarily susceptible to sleep apnea. It turns out the anatomy or the anatomical variables predict maybe 20 25% of who does or doesn't have sleep apnea. There are other factors like the muscles in the upper airway, how your body controls breathing. Other factors like the arousal threshold, which is how easily you wake up from sleep, those things also come into play. So it's not that some people are screwed and some people aren't. It's more a matter of uh, we're all different and we all have different factors that contribute to breathing issues. OK, here's uh, and, and these last
0: couple kind of deal with m- more of the uh, what what Amy is is putting forward as a controversy surrounding UARS. And, and so this is her, her last two questions. She says, has the orthodontic community caused serious damage by touting extraction based orthodontic treatment? Interesting question. Is that is that a thing that is is happening with people who suffer from UARS? RS is, is orthodontists are saying, oh, if we do these extractions, everything will be fine?
2: Well, I'm not going to make disparaging comments about a, an entire profession. What I'll say is different providers, be they doctors or, or, or dentists or, or, or others, have different ways of doing things. I'll say again that the, the best treatment for obstructive sleep apnea as of now is nasal sleep apnea, continuous positive airway pressure. And the majority of people that get that will tolerate it if you work with somebody who's inexperienced hands. We recently published up to 87% of patients with sleep ap have good adherence to to treatment using modern technology. And so that's really the first line treatment. Beyond that, these mouthpieces, or some forms of surgery. Other things can be done on the upper airway. And there are different people that push different um, uh, priorities. So there are orthodontists who have particular approaches that they use. The the data on those things are, are still evolving. And so I won't say... This works and that doesn't because I think we don't know, but I would be careful about having any kind of uh, permanent uh, intervention done until you're really confident that's the right thing to do. So I don't typically send anybody to get their teeth pulled or extracted or anything in the context of sleep apnea treatment, but, you know, sometimes that might be necessary. It's interesting because I I pick up
0: bits and pieces from Amy's email that makes it sound like she went down a road that she thought was going to help and it turned out to not have helped at all. And she's maybe retracing her steps a little bit because one of the other questions she asks in this list, and this was the last one she sent, she says, why isn't UARS more widely recognized? But that kind of gets back to what we were talking about before with the difference between UARS and mild sleep apnea, right?
2: Yeah, that's correct, and, and I think it's not diagnosed very commonly anymore because modern technology picks up those more subtle events. We used to say, oh, there's no sleep apnea here, so it must be something else. Now we can say with some confidence, oh, this is mild sleep apnea, and, and that's the the term. Part of the problem, though, is just to, to broaden the conversation slightly, is that uh, our yardsticks for sleep apnea severity are not great. And so one person could have mild sleep apnea and feel terrible, Somebody else might have severe sleep apnea, might feel great, and everything in between. So the yardsticks are not good in terms of predicting symptoms. They're, they're okay, but not great. And then moreover, sleep apnea has complications, like it can affect uh, brain function in terms of how well you sleep and how well you're thinking. Uh, and it could also affect your cardiometabolic health in terms of your heart disease and these sort of things. And so just because somebody has mild sleep apnea doesn't mean their heart is protected necessarily. Other things like that where making assumptions about, oh, it's just mild sleep apnea, don't worry about it. That may or may not be true. We have data on uh, memory consolidation, for example, where people may or may not remember uh, things tomorrow based on how well they sleep tonight. It's called sleep-dependent memory consolidation. And in fact, it's it's not the sleep apnea severity that predicts that. It seems to be the arousals. How often people wake up from sleep seems to be the best predictor. On the other hand, for other complications like high blood pressure or insulin resistance, there are different yardsticks for predicting those things. How much your oxygen levels fall at night, for example, can be a, a very important predictor of uh, who develops high blood pressure. But that's different for for different systems, and so depending on which sleep apnea complication you're thinking about, different yardsticks may be worthwhile in terms of predicting who's going to get those complications. So somebody's told me that UARS or mild sleep apnea, and I use those kind of interchangeably, uh, is a risk to that. The answer is yes, there could be, and depends what symptoms are, depends on uh, other things, and so important that people go talk to their doctor and make sure that they're not ignoring something that might be important. Okay, so when you say go talk to their doctor.
0: Let me, let me give you uh, – let me pick your brain on sleep apnea for the layperson because when I went for my sleep lab at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto and uh, Mark Boulos, who's my sleep doctor there, told me that I have mild sleep apnea. One of the reasons that I went in the first place was because my family doctor, um, also in Toronto, said when, when she received the report from my wife that sleeping next to me was sometimes like sleeping next to a chamber. Saw because of how much snoring i was doing right our family doctor said well that's textbook sleep apnea you got to get to a sleep lab right and then i and then i get to the sleep lab and mark tells me no your sleep apnea is not really your problem it's it's mild at best um and so then we you know i learned and i'm sure a lot of people are, are learning along the way that just because you snore doesn't necessarily mean you have sleep apnea so who, who is the best person to tell me what my course of treatment going forward should be? Is it the sleep doctor that did my polysomnography or is there somebody else I should be talking to along the way as well?
2: Yeah. You know, answer that sort of tongue in cheek and say the best person to decide is, is actually you. It's not one of your doctors. And I say that sort of, uh, with some, some thought that the, the, what we call patient reported outcomes or patient perspectives are being increasingly appreciated. So as I said, I have some people who have mild sleep apnea who are miserable who I would put on treatment and if they feel great, then I've done my job. Uh, if they feel fine and I try and twist their arm to make them feel better, that doesn't make any sense. And so I really do think the patient perspective is an important one here where where depending how you feel or how your wife feels, uh, that might help guide therapy. And so I have plenty of people on my, with mild sleep apnea well, try and CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure, as a treatment. And if they feel like a million bucks, then I run with it. If they do poorly, then I bark up another tree. And so, I, I think there is a, a, a role to empowering the patients uh, in this context. Uh, the other thing that's worth saying is it's still estimated that you know eighty or ninety percent of sleep apnea is undiagnosed and untreated. Uh, we've estimated up to a billion people worldwide with obstructive sleep apnea in a recent publication. And so the fact that your doctors even asked about it is laudable because plenty of doctors don't, they just either not interested or didn't learn about it in medical school or, uh, or they don't care or, or whatever. So the fact that your doctors are on top of this and, and helping you out and giving you different options, I think is great.
0: So in terms of people that I should be getting advice from, I I start to think about that idea. If if the main tool you have is a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail. So is it necessarily that if you think you have sleep apnea or you've been diagnosed with sleep apnea and you're asking your dentist or your orthodontist what to do, they're going to suggest an intervention that involves them? Or am I barking up the wrong tree there?
2: No, I think you're right. I think if you go to Midas, you get a muffler. And I think it's the same sort of thing with depending who you go to that can help. Guide which direction your therapy is going. I I try to be open-minded about it and sort of give a a range of therapies. But you know, I'm a lung doctor by training, and so it's statistically more likely that you'll end up with a CPAP machine uh, for me, continuous positive airway pressure, uh, compared to some other treatment. That may reflect my biases, but also reflects the existing data where the outcomes are best with that sort of intervention. But you're right; if you go to an orthodontist, you might end up with one of those kind of treatments or some surgeons would have the same sort of view. But on the other hand, I work with plenty of surgeons who say, Oh, go talk to Dr. Malhotra first and uh, see what he has to offer. And then depending on what you guys decide, then come back and see me and we have surgical options as well. So I think in a good uh, context, multidisciplinary care and good communication among providers, including the patient's voice, uh, I think is, is the way to go. And so the fact that, um, some orthodontists are pushing a particular treatment, you know, I'd encourage conversations with the patient and other providers as well. And that's perhaps a take-home message for patients is don't, don't just sort of listen to the first opinion you get, just get a range of opinions and make sure that there aren't other treatment options that haven't been Considered. If you're a person who is, and and I'll make this uh, my last question because I'm kind of cognizant of your time
0: here. Um, in Amy's case, and and we're not going to dispense specific medical advice to Amy, but I'm sure there are people who are in Amy's boat as well. Is and and if I'm correct, that she seems to have gone down a road, followed a treatment path, and is now. Second guessing what she's done. So if you're in that scenario, let's say you, you present with UARS and you have, um, perhaps some sort of either airway focused dentistry or orthodontic procedure done or whatever. And it didn't work for you. Yeah. Is CPAP your next option? Who's the next person that someone like Amy should end up talking to?
2: Well, I, again, as you said, we, we're not going to give specific medical advice to an individual. But in that context, I would seek a second opinion. I see plenty of patients who have had multiple different therapies for something, and in the fact, their problem's not sleep apnea, and it's not UARS either. They have insomnia, or they have some other sleep disorder. And they need uh, sort of broader perspective. I've seen patients who have depression, and their problem's not sleep related. They have some other issue that needs to be addressed. And so, I, I don't know in Amy's particular case, and I don't know what testing has been done. But I think a second opinion, and starting from scratch, just reassessing, hey, is my problem related to sleep or something else? If it is related to sleep, is it a breathing problem or unrelated to breathing? I think taking a broader perspective can be very helpful, particularly when the path you've gone down uh, hasn't been helpful. If Amy was feeling great and everything was a million bucks, I'd be less uh, inclined to, to question it. If she's doing poorly, despite interventions that have been done, I think So we're taking a step back and say, hey, where are we, as you said, barking up the wrong tree?
0: I appreciate you making time for this because every time somebody reaches out and asks questions and, and, uh, you know, I'm terrified that anyone might ever ask questions of the show thinking that I know the answers because that's a horrifying thought. Um, But I try to reach out to the to the people who actually know the answers. And uh, and I'm grateful that you had some time to address what Amy was talking about. And hopefully it helps a bunch of other people along the way. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. And if I may just say, you know, I'm happy to come back and thank you for having me on the show. And I'll just say as a take home message as well, prioritizing sleep is an important thing that we should all do. We think of the three pillars of health being diet, exercise, and sleep. And the dogma is if you ignore one, the other two will suffer. And so if you're not sleeping well, it's hard to have a good diet or or exercise well. And each of those uh, parameters is equally important. And so if you're not optimizing sleep, it's important to prioritize it. Talk to your doctor about it. And if your doctor doesn't know anything about it, then ask them uh, who you could talk to about it to make sure your issues are being addressed. It's not something to ignore anymore. If you have a sleep
0: topic that you'd like us to follow up on, go to our website at the Click the link that says reviews, feedback, and support and go with the option that works best for you. We'd love it if you'd leave us a voicemail because that way when the accountants come back to us and ask us why we're paying for a toll-free phone number, we can point to the great messages that people are leaving for us on our machine. So, on our machine? How old am I? Finally, we're going to wrap up this week's episode with the president-elect of the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine, Dr. Michael Grandner from the University of Arizona with the latest sleep science. I want to throw something at you, uh, eventually that is on my radar as far as okay. sleep science, and I'm dying to hear what you have to say about it, but okay. I want to start with what's on your mind. What's, what's caught your attention lately?
3: So there've been a couple of really cool papers coming out, um, of that, that have taken some big picture questions and, and really gone after them. So one is sort of looking at, uh, the role of the, the circadian and, and and other systems in the glymphatic system. Um, that's been a cool paper. I've been I've been digging through a little bit. There's another great paper that just came out that's looking at um, that that came from um, uh, Max Design program where they they released a so the title of this I guess is the best way to summarize it, it says a standardized framework for testing the performance of sleep tracking technology step by step guidelines and open source code. And the context behind this, first of all, I, I, that's also in interest of yours, but the context behind this, so this program here in, in the Bay Area who's done a lot of this work, they've done a lot of the testing of a lot of the commercial devices. They're probably the best at this. And. They've really sort of taken the lead in in asking the question, like what does it mean for a device to be reliable and valid in a commercial real world setting? That's not a scientific piece of equipment, but is trying to give people information that addresses um, a scientific question. And this paper is really, you know, it's really where it sort of walks through like this whole process, and 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 even it even provides like. Um, you know, open source statistical code for doing the kind of analyses that a lot of software packages just don't have because they're not built to do this, but they wrote the code and they're releasing it so other people can validate devices. So that that was really cool. That just came out this week. And there's another one that just came out um, where I forget what country it's from, but some European data where they had over a million people wearing smartwatches and tracking them over time. And, um, with this very large data set looking at what are what what how are sleep variables varying across age groups and sex and time to bed and weekday versus weekend and all this sort of stuff and a large population view so that was another really cool paper to come out that that's just one of the biggest that's been done with wearables
0: Fascinating. So, uh, I mean, the the trend seems to be, let's get this thing as close as we possibly can to PSG, except what everybody seems to insist on, except for the dream people, is let's put something that you wear uh, on your arms or your hands or something like that.
3: Well, yes and no. I mean, part of it has to do with um, part of it has to do with the fact that the wrist-based technology is really well developed and quite inexpensive to make and and buy, and it's actually not too bad. Um, the brain-based devices may be more accurate at looking at what the brain is doing during sleep, but you know all of these are imperfect measures, and and it's because we can't measure sleep directly. And so the question is, even this comparison to PSG and polysomnography is is I think it's not a bad idea. It's obviously the gold standard, but as I've mentioned before, it's not the gold standard because it's gold. And I think that this idea of even the idea of sleep stages, this isn't this is a 50 plus year old idea that, you know, it's starting to be a little outdated. You know, sleep stages are just, you know, here's a thing in nature and we decide where the lines are, but we're drawing lines relatively arbitrarily where, where nature doesn't really do that. So maybe the future isn't in, you know, how well does it predict what stage you're in? Maybe it's 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 you're trying to predict, you know, what is happening in the brain and in the body at the time, irrespective of whatever stage you're in. And I think that there's real future there. For example, you have these heart rate monitors that you can get some sleep stage data from. What that means is, I mean, sleep staging, again, being sort of arbitrary, but what it's showing you is there's something going on with this pulse that, and, and heart rate data that you can infer something about what's going on in the brain. First of all, why? That's um, a scientific question. Like, what is that connection there? But also, is, what if there's information in the wrist in, in the cardiovascular system, in the stress response system, and all these other wearable sensors that we've got now, you know, we have sleep stages out of EEG because that was the technology we had at the time. Now that we have other technology, what if there's sleep stages in, blood, in, in heart rate? What if there's sleep stages in other things too? And we just don't know yet because we're only looking at it through one lens. I don't know.
0: Holy smokes, that's a game changer. Uh, I never, you know, it, it never even occurred to me because you could make, you talk about it, it's not the gold standard because it's gold. It, you could make the same argument, for example, about the Olympics that I'm starting to see uh, take a lot of people's attention on social media this week. Um, and, and there's the interesting idea to extrapolate what you've said and apply it to the Olympics. Winning the gold medal doesn't mean you're the best in the world. It means you were the best at the Olympics.
3: Right. Um, and so – so the other day, um, I was talking with my eight-year-old about Minecraft, as one does. And, and, he, asked <laughs> question. and so he asked the question, why is gold valuable? And I said, well, it's valuable because everyone decides that it's valuable. And, um, and he said, well, what does that mean? He's like, is it because it's really rare? I'm like, well, there are things that are rarer. Um, but so, so he's like, so why gold? Why, why did we decide that that's the thing that's worth money? I said, just because everyone decided it. Yep. And he's like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, if you've got let's say you've got a a a Pokemon card that you think is worth a dollar, right? How do you know it's worth a dollar? And and he's like, well, because you could sell it for a dollar. I'm like, okay, well, what if you could sell it for five? Would it be worth five? And the idea is that, you know, things th- there's a lot in this world that's the standard. Because it's sort of the best we've got to go on, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it reflects an objective truth. It's just everyone sort of decided that this is the right answer um, until something else comes along to sort of replace it. You know? It's like
0: whoever decided that mint was going to be the flavor that signified fresh breath. exactly. You know, why couldn't it have been chocolate? <laughs> exactly. Well, I, there, there would be exactly. so much easier of a taste to have in my mouth all the time. Um, okay, so you talk about sleep staging. You know, I Because you're among the busiest humans on, on the planet, um, and this is not the thing that I want to throw at you and get your opinion on, but on last week's episode, we had Laura Boyerskaite from the yeah. University of Oslo. And she was talking about the glymphatic system and REM sleep. And she was talking about how everybody, all the studies that have been done, look at deep sleep and the glymphatic system. Nobody's looking at REM sleep, which is what she's been doing. But we get to the point in that conversation where I ask... Because she threw it out there sort of just as a throwaway thought. She said, you know, it's not like you can test for these proteins just kind of randomly. You can walk up and test for these proteins that are clogging up people's brains and leading to dementia. I said, well, wait a minute. Is that is that something that's on the horizon? Is that something that's on the radar? She didn't know. But it occurs to me that you are a guy who's got his finger on the pulse of all the sleep research that's happening on the planet. Is that something that people are thinking about? And, and is it something realistically that someone somewhere in a lab on the planet is trying to develop is an actual relatively easy test for whether or not we have a level of these proteins in our brains that is going to cause us a problem down the road?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, people have been doing people have been looking for it for a long time. I mean, there there are ways to test for it, but they're not easy or simple. Um so right now, the best we have is really expensive, complicated brain imaging. But like everything, it starts with the really complicated and convoluted and expensive way to, to detect something. I mean, look at the size, you know, you're talking about computers the size of a room that cost more than a house. Um, but then within 20 years, they get smaller and cheaper. And then within 20 years, you know, they're in our pocket. And so I, I think, yeah, right now, it's, th- there are ways to detect these things. Um, and they're only, it's only going to get easier down the road. And actually the, the thing, the thing that really, the thing that really is interesting to me isn't, will we be able to measure beta amyloid? Um, it's more, as we learn more about why it is that beta amyloid is a problem and what is it that it's actually doing? Um, I think that's, and then we can measure that. Because ba- the, all the evidence seems to be pointing to that the beta amyloid is, is sort of a problem, but it's, it's not directly the problem. And so you're, you're looking at some of these other proteins and you're looking at some of these processes and what are the markers of these processes. Eventually, we maybe get to the point where we have portable brain imaging, where you know we have, we have an EEG band that people can wear around their head and purchase for a few hundred bucks, where 10 years ago, that was pie in the sky. And 20 years ago, that was laughable. So, you know, sure. I think that there are – so to answer your question, yes, people are already looking. They've actually been looking for a while, um, and, and, and the process is happening.
0: Fascinating. Okay, so the thing I do want to take your temperature on. Okay. It's from um, an institution of higher learning that I know you have no connection to whatsoever, the University of Pennsylvania. <laughs> Um, and you probably already know the study that I'm talking about. It came out a few days ago talking about the the title of the paper is noise as a sleep aid, a systematic review. And they basically put forward the idea, and I'm going to quote here, the quality of evidence for continuous noise, improving sleep was very low, which contradicts its widespread use, which basically throws a monkey wrench into the whole idea of white noise machines helping you sleep. Did you see that?
3: yeah so so um, lots of people have been talking about it and for good reason so the, the the authors of the paper are also you know people I know quite well. The first author was uh, Samantha Reedy, who I've known for a long time who um, ever since we were both trainees at the same time, even at different institutions, the senior author is Matias Basner, who is probably the world's leading expert on noise and sleep, um, who's also a fascinating, Guy as, as it is and super nice but anyway so this, so this paper is a systematic review of noise and sleep um, I think that the message in the paper is sort of loud and clear that um, you, it, it's, not, it's not a clear cut story that noise helps sleep um, the, the evidence level is quite low and I think the answers to that are, are, are a couple fold first of all um, I think this also points to a general lack of of research in the sort of applications that people are really asking about. Um, so a lot of these studies, you know, if you're looking at sleep in a laboratory setting under controlled conditions, for example, um, well, that's not really how people are using it. That might help under, uh, it might help uncover some of what's going on physiologically, but, you know, there are certain things that, that are different in an artificial setting, or if you're measuring in the home, are you measuring it in the kind of people who would buy and use white noise machines? So I guess, I think what the evidence is saying is that, look, if you're looking to white noise to fix um, a sleep problem, that's probably not going to do a lot. Um, If anything, like for some people it may help for other people, it may not. Um, and I think, you know, honestly, I wasn't surprised by this at all. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily recommend white noise to people, but I don't necessarily don't recommend it either. For some people, they find it useful, not necessarily because the noise itself is helping sleep so much as the noise itself can, uh, especially people who have high degrees of hyperarousal, it might help them filter out sounds or it might help give them something to focus on. But again, it's, it's nothing I would give on its own. You know, it's sort of one of those, one other thing to help. I mean, if there were, there were randomized trials of, you know, sitting down for a few minutes and like turning off your screens a little bit before bed, you might see subtle effects, but people replace it with other things. So I guess, I guess my reaction is I, I think this was, I think the study was, was sorely needed and I think it's, it was an important reality check for everyone talking about this, that, that the evidence really isn't there on a systematic level. doesn't mean it's not th- It doesn't mean it doesn't exist on an individual level. It's just not really there on a systematic level. This reminds me a lot of another paper that came out a few years ago um, by, by a group in Australia where they looked at jet lag and treatments for jet lag. And everybody talks about light, using morning light and evening light to, to shift rhythms for jet lag. Because in the laboratory, that's the best way to shift rhythms. Um, is using timed light. Um, And so this is what everyone talks about. This is all the recommendations for jet lag. Get light here, avoid light here. That's the main thing. Um, And it turns out all of the studies that use light as a treatment for jet lag, most of them failed. They actually didn't work. And and, each study in the discussion is like, well, maybe there weren't enough people or maybe blah, blah, blah. But when you look at them all together, very few of them actually worked. So then the authors were like, huh, when they did the systematic review, like, that's weird. Why is the thing that everyone recommends, why is it, why, there's no evidence for it. Why do we recommend it? Well, we're recommending it based on it should work, but the actual evidence didn't support it. What actually seemed to be supported by that review, again, it wasn't totally clear cut, but it, was, it seemed like combining light with some sort of physical activity and exercise in the morning, actually that did more than either one alone. So it just goes to show that in a real world setting, you know things can be complicated, and and it's worth you know. Some people say, "Well, we had to spend money to to answer this question. Didn't we already know this?" Like, well, no. You know, some things sort of seem obvious, but this is why we have to do research because you know, if 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 we already knew the answer, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't need to do it. But sometimes what we assume to be true isn't always true, and that's okay.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting real world study that's going on here at Headley Manor with white noise because we use it for the two year old, um, to buffer noises that are coming from outdoors. So if we have the white noise machine on in her room, we found that she's less likely to be awakened by sirens going by in the middle of the night or traffic noise or if the dog barks or whatever else happens to happen. You know, the sound of the dishwasher finishing a cycle and beeping, all those things. Well, the white noise machine's on. She doesn't hear any of those sounds and they don't wake her up. My wife, on the other hand, finds white noise machines shrill and and she doesn't like them at all and can't be in a room where there's one, uh, that's, that's making noise. She just can't do it. Um, so yeah, it's interesting why, and, and I guess the application is, is key context. It was as with so many things, context is key, which is also why I think it's important to point out that when I said, uh, that Michael had uh, no connection to the university of Pennsylvania whatsoever, um, yeah. he's got a whole pile of connection to the university of Pennsylvania. Um, it, it, I mean, how, how many years were you there? Eight. Yeah. So yeah, it was yeah. it was uh, it was sarcasm on my point, and I hope uh, I hope it uh, I hope it landed properly.
3: Uh, um, it did, but I don't know I don't for people listening they might not know I I got the joke. But yeah no, and like I think I think this was um, this was extremely well done. And I think the message is really important, and I think the the main take home message is you know don't just because something seems sort of obvious doesn't mean it is. And what they found was a lot of studies, noise actually interrupted sleep, which we also already know. Anyone who lives on a busy street knows that noise can interrupt sleep. And then there were some studies where it helped. And so I think the real question is, what's the difference? Um, Is it just random or are there some cases where it helps and some where it doesn't? And that opens the door to the next scientific question of, where and how and why um, and I think I think this is this really moved the conversation forward in a way that other studies have never really been able to so I think it's great
0: listen Mr. President elect I'm gonna let you go um, sure. but I I wanted to take a second because I don't know that I've ever pointed this out while we were actually still rolling um, what an absolute honor and a pleasure it is to have you on the show uh, those oh, times hey. when we're able to connect our schedules so thanks it means a whole ton
3: no thanks a lot this is a lot of fun to do And and I really enjoy um, talking about this stuff.
0: All right. Thank you to all the guests on this week's show. Michael, Atul, Beth, especially to you. Until we get together next week for another episode of the Snooze Button Podcast, my name is Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep, would you?